Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Natalie Vogel. Natalie is the Senior Fellow at the European Values Center for Security Policy. And she is here, well, for a number of reasons. I've, I've wanted to have her on for a while. That's first and foremost. The second reason is she's German, speaks fluent Russian, and is a Kremlin watcher, an assiduous Kremlin watcher. And the third reason is she is an outspoken critic of the European Union's approach to Moscow. And this seems like a particularly apt week in which to have such a guest on, given the what I think Natalie and I both agree would be the abject failure of the European Union with respect to the Alexei Navalny imprisonment, which is essentially a political hostage scenario. Natalie has details, and I suppose gossip isn't the right word, information, perhaps even intelligence, non-classified intelligence that she's looking to share with us. I'm sure those of you who listen to this program will have seen the humiliation of the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, who, against better counsel, went to Moscow in the midst of this politicized Navalny incarceration and show trial, and was essentially led by the nose by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, to, instead of denouncing the Russian government's jailing of a dissident, talk about uh, the U.S. embargo on Cuba. And and basically, it was a, a classic example of a very skilled veteran Russian diplomat eating the lunch of a not so skilled and perhaps not fit for purpose European diplomat. And Natalie, I'm going to turn it over to you because you've probably forgotten more about the geopolitical dynamics at play here than most people will ever know, myself included. And you've been sort of teasing me with information that you wanted to share. So what is going on in Brussels? Let's start there. Why is it so difficult for the European Union, which has often talked a robust game about democratic liberal values and upholding human rights standards. Why have they failed so categorically with respect to, you know, a very clear cut case of a 21st century, 21st century, yeah, political prisoner dissident in Russia, essentially being thrown into the gulag? Well, I wish I could answer that question uh, by quoting uh, Prince Philip, who would uh, say, in that respect, if you can't say anything nice, then just shut up. That would make a very short interview. You know, we have a say in German that goes, um, a team is as good as its worst member. Uh, The trouble is, in the case of the European Union foreign policy, the worst member is the captain of the team. This is one issue. This is is an issue that that we have with, in that case, uh, Joseph Borrell, first of all. I advise anyone who wants to look into the issue to go online and Google an interview that Borrell gave to Tim Sebastian a couple of years ago on Conflict Zone, um, which is uh, broadcasted on, on Deutsche Welle. And there you get a pretty clear idea of uh, the kind of uh, personality we have to deal with. We are not speaking a paragon of virtue here. We are speaking a representative of uh, European bureaucracy, a pure product of the Socialist Party of Spain. And anyone who knows anything about the, the Spanish socialists knows about the kind of political culture they evolve. And if you have doubts... I invite you also to ask uh, our friends, the Cuban exiles, who've dealt with the Spanish socialists in the past, what they think about uh, the foreign policy stance of the Spanish socialists. 
or for that matter, the representatives of the, the opposition in Venezuela, uh, what they think about the, the stance of the Spanish socialists. So what you see is what you get. It did not come up like this uh, recently. This is the man representing the European Union and its foreign policy. We picked a we. I'm not saying we, they picked a Spanish socialist. And what you get is the representative of a broken country that has very little expertise in Central and Eastern Europe, might be a good mathematician and a good uh, professor in his field, but is completely unfit as a diplomat. Going to Russia in that case and offering the uh, propaganda apparatus an occasion to humiliate the European Union. It's a mistake. And I happen to teach classes of, of um, psychological warfare. And I was thinking of skipping the next class and tell uh, the students, look, those are classes for practitioners. Skip the class and look at the disaster of this visit. And you will get a good idea of what you should not do with a Russian target audience. You know what? Anything that uh, has been said and written on the topic is quite frankly enough. I, I'm not going to add more to the criticism. I think Thomas Ilves is actually the one who nailed it uh, best. He said going on a long scheduled trip to Moscow after Navalny's arrest is unserious. It's not foreign policy. It's submission before an inferior. And he's completely right. Now, adding insult to injury, he Borrell comes back and issues a statement. Russia does not want a constructive dialogue with uh, the, the European Union. And Russia and the EU are drifting apart after a complicated visit. End of quote. Now, I don't know, is this a Facebook status? The relationship is complicated. At least it sounds like it. But you wonder on which planet this man has been living in the last five years. Because the list of hostile activities against the member states of the European Union is so long. I mean, those activities are legion. This man obviously has not read the reports of the counterintelligence agencies of various member states. Uh, For our, our listeners, if you could rattle off, let's say, the top five most scandalous acts of, in some case, Russian state terrorism perpetrated on EU soil, Russian espionage, intelligence gathering mechanisms... Even in saying those words, like I am already, it's occurring to me, Skripal, Kangashvili, I mean, all of these assassination attempts. In your mind, though, the worst and most egregious. I definitely think that the case of Zelim Khangoshvili is a blatant case of state terrorism on EU soil, on German soil. In that case, with... Uh, this was the, uh, the murder of, of a Chechen dissident. Georgian. Georgian, but ethnic Chechen, right. And actually was a spy for the Georgian government, which I reported, the Daily Beast at the time, who was murdered in broad daylight in the, one of the largest parks in central Berlin. And the German government, after putting out all kinds of disinformation that, oh, in fact, he had been a terrorist during the Second Chechen War, finally copped to the fact that it was an FSB assassination. And Bellingcat has done some excellent, characteristically excellent reporting, excavating the who, what, where, and how of this murder. But again, in Berlin, you know, the Russian government sent agents to murder a political exile and dissident. Yeah. 
walking distance of the chancery, which is also a symbol. Right. So this is really state terrorism. Similar liquidations have happened on behalf of Russian intelligence, and I'm sure we will learn more about it in the next month, and we will be very surprised. Uh, I don't think I'm disclosing too much, but there is uh, there is certainly a case here of terrorism uh, against uh, against EU countries. Now, we also have the uh, GRU conducted uh, action against the Bundestag, the after the cyber attacks against the Bundestag. And we have also the fact that uh, the Russian intelligence services are active on German soil in that case. I'm speaking of Germany, but I could speak of France. I could speak of other countries. They are very active at subverting uh, civil society, at uh, fomenting um, civil unrest. They fund radical fringes of political uh, on the political far right and far left spectrum. They are very good at subversion, but that we know they put up front organization organizations. We have major issues in terms of counterintelligence. Those are facts. Obviously, Mr. Borrell is not aware of this and is very surprised upon traveling to Moscow to discover that uh, Russia is not interested in any cooperation. Well, duh. <laughs> I hate to break the news, but obviously he's the only one who was unaware, who was unaware of this. And I won't even go into Borrell's expertise when it comes to China, because there this is a sheer disaster. So to cut a long story short, what you see is what you get. This is a Spanish socialist, a bureaucrat, and who should have stayed in Spain. Right. Now, you know, what I find interesting about this episode is you hear a lot of talk or you did in the last couple of years, particularly as the United States seemed to be undertaking this sort of grand recessional from the world, right? You know, the former president, Donald Trump, talking about NATO as a sort of racket, uh, not worth the, the costs, particularly and especially to the United States. And so, you know, leaders such as Macron talking about, you know, I think that the term is, is security sovereignty for Europe. We have to take destiny into our own hands. We can no longer rely on American servicemen stationed, you know, on the continent. And we are not under the U.S. security umbrella any longer. So now it's time for. But, you know, I look at Europe today and I see a place that is almost hopelessly divided, even within specific countries, political classes kind of at war with each other about what to do. Uh, you and I have talked offline and in person about, I don't know, failure of nerve and certainly moral resolve in in Germany, even though there's a very good and capable intelligence service and counterintelligence service that knows the score and knows particularly what the, the Russian special services are up to in Germany and in the rest of Europe. Still, we see, you know, Nord Stream 2 must, it's full steam ahead. Members of the German political class is being co-opted by the Russian government and paid handsomely for consultancies or even board membership in state energy companies. I don't see Europe getting security, sovereignty in the near or frankly, even in the distant future, if this is a reflection of European policy. I mean, abasing oneself in a capital that has just railroaded, you know, the leader of the, the opposition and railroaded him after having spent the last three years trying to murder him with a military grade nerve agent. You, you live there, you kind of breathe this in on a daily basis. What is the proposal to reform or to do anything with respect to the European Union? I mean, there had been this talk of the EU having its own kind of military force. I see those soldiers being deployed against European countries before I see them you know, sent abroad to, uh, to to protect European sovereignty. What is taking place 
right now. I mean, we, we, we've talked on the show about the rise of populist authoritarianism, reactionary political elements, far left anti-imperialist, quote unquote, political elements, uh, which seem to be just as aligned with Moscow's interests as the far right. Ill fares the land, I, I should say. But what are your observations and thoughts? Well, I'm not a great believer in uh, in this theory, according to which the European Union would be able in the near future to get its act together. And it leads me back to the first uh, sentence I said uh, during this interview, a team is as good as its worst member. And the worst members are the ones who are either not ready to commit commit to a strong European defense and even not ready to commit to a strong domestic defense. I would categorize uh, Germany as such an actor. Yes, they need to man up. They are not ready to do so. And then we have actors such as uh, France. They have a clear idea of their interests. They have a clear idea of the role of defense and security. But it's a national, it's a, it's a national, I'm not saying nationalistic, but almost conception of defense and sovereignty. And uh, as long as the European interests meet French interests, everything is fine. But uh, the moment they diverge, we won't have a European concept. We could have a French-led European defense concept, but I'm not sure this would meet the interest of the other member states. So here we are. Not so long ago, Macron was embarking upon his own version of a, a Franco-Russian reset, premised on the notion that, um, well, first and foremost, uh, a counterterrorism cooperation mechanism, which, I mean, my God, how many articles have I written about the way U.S.-Russian counterterrorism was conceived and just simply did not work? Right. You have now former U.S. officials on the record saying, you know, we wanted to talk about Al Qaeda. They wanted to talk about Chechen exiles and political actors. Right. And weird sort of cultural outcroppings of this. I don't know if you saw this article in The New York Times yesterday or the day before. France now is blaming the United States for exporting wokeness or, you know, literary theory, critical theory, um, which is now corrupting French society and, and making people traffic in moral equivalence or being a little too sensitive about issues of uh, having to do with race and Me Too and Islam and all this, which is hilarious to me because all of these concepts, as far as I know, and from my reading, were imported from places like France to the United States. So I guess we're spitting it back out at, at Europe. But reading this article, I couldn't help but think if the French political class is tilting rightward, particularly on culture issues. And, you know, with uh, the, the sort of galvanizing examples of Islamic radicalization, or not even just a Muslim diaspora living in the country. Now I understand a little bit more about Macron's attempted embrace of Moscow, thinking in terms of, of grand civilizational concepts. There is Europe, which he conceives of as including the Russian Federation. There is America, and then there is kind of Islam, those nation states, including especially Turkey, with which he's engaged rather raucously, whether it's in the Mediterranean or in Libya or elsewhere. But again, this all gets to the heart of the matter. I mean, the UK had this rather agonized, still agonizing breakup with the EU, which I, as a former British resident and you know a strong believer in the transatlantic relationship and also a strong believer in Britain's integral role in keeping the EU from indulging its worst instincts, 
was against. However, I look at this affair with Borrell in Moscow and I think, hell, it, it almost makes me want to become a Brexiteer, right? <laughs> this project seems to be failing. And, and by the way, the irony is you're seeing the most Europhile diplomats and foreign service types. I mean, you mentioned uh, President Ilvis from Estonia, who is a huge believer in the European project, screaming bloody murder about this. But again, how much egg can have one have on, it, on one's face before you say, well, maybe this just doesn't work? Well, just to to make something clear here, uh, Macron is seems to have embarked on a trip to find his inner de Gaulle, because ultimately, in times of crisis, anti-Americanism sells, always has in France, and this sovereignty thing, this kind of of narrative serves domestic purpose. Do not get impressed by the noise. What is really interesting when you look at a French foreign policy and domestic, especially in security issues, actually, you get a very clear idea of uh, what the priority are. And, um, you know, again, There is what uh, Macron officially says and what he officially does. And those are two worlds apart. When he makes foreign policy statements, most of the time he is targeting a domestic audience. And as I said, he's trying to find his inner de Gaulle because uh, this is obviously what is needed right now. And probably in two months, it, it will be something else. French domestic politics have always been very complicated. And there, I think we uh, we can agree on the fact that, yes, there is a pro-European uh, stance when it serves domestic purposes. And it stops when it stops serving domestic purposes. If domestic purposes are served by taking and perhaps anti-European stance isn't the correct phrase, a sort of a French first policy as against a pan-European one. And also the tilt rightward is to try and steal some of the thunder from Le Pen and you know the National Front. So if the society is becoming more reactionary in that regard, then wither the EU, because eventually the people will start to vote for politicians who say, it's time for Frexit, or it's time to sort of cast our lot independently, particularly if France and Germany aren't getting on, which they didn't really uh, with respect to the crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean. Again, I, I'm trying to sort of um, gird my pessimism and with respect to the EU, but things are not looking so hot right now. I would have said four years ago, given the rise of, as I said before, populist authoritarianism, and particularly what's happened in North America, we're now beginning to recover from our sort of ideological psychosis, at least I hope we are. And things haven't turned out so poorly in Europe. In fact, I think they might, one might argue they've started to steadily improve. I mean, you're, you're seeing now a Hungarian opposition to Orban that's doing pretty well, and according to the polls. The UK for all of its crises is, you know, uh, they were in a position to elect a batshit Trotskyist who embraced every manner of terrorist known to man, and they didn't. And anti-Semite. And an anti-Semite, and they didn't. And he's been confined to, I don't know, a kind of the memory hole of old tweets, I suppose. Things have not turned out as poorly, and yet on the grand scale, geopolitically speaking, all of the same contradictions and problems are still there. I I'm waiting for the leader of Europe to emerge. Angela Merkel was seen as that, but she's on the way out. And the leader of her party now also has some rather doodah notions. I mean, let's talk about that for a few minutes. I mean, a guy who tweeted at John Kerry that the United States was supporting ISIS, a guy who has taken on pro-Assad 
positions on Syria, even though he's seen to be the, quote, moderate within the, the, the Christian Democrats. I mean, again, <laughs> I'm quite concerned. Uh, we, we spent a long time, especially in this country, talking about how liberal democracies come asunder very easily. And even when you think the institutions are in pretty stalwart and secure, you can kind of knock them over with a feather. In Europe, it seems even more perilous now than it does in the United States. What do you see the future of German politics looking like, for instance? Well, first of all, we should not only focus on this America first uh, psychosis, as you call it. Let's be clear about something here. There is also a Germany first policy. It's just we don't call it that way. Yeah. But when Heiko Maas, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, decries the U.S. policy under Trump, because it is an egoistic, and I forgot what uh, how he really put it, but basically it's all about Amer uh, American interests first. Let me laugh. What you call the Nord Stream 2 policy and the fact that, you, that Germany is jeopardizing the security of the eastern flank and is also endangering environment and is also putting its interest first before uh, national security and European security. What do you call the fact that the German government in its support for Nord Stream is actually funding the war in Ukraine against Ukraine? What do you call that type of policy, if not a Germany first policy? And then the hypocrisy to come up and then lecture the allies and lecture the Poles and lecture the Americans, because lecturing is an essential part of the German political discourse. My God, this is scary. This is scary. Now, you mentioned Amin Lashet. Amin Lashet does not only have a soft spot for Assad, basically conveying the pro-Russian discourse here. He also has a very soft spot for the Putin regime. Mm -hmm. And we have here somebody who has been actually attacking, not really attacking, but discussing the responsibility of the Russian Federation and its intelligence services in the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. Armin Laschet has always been very, I would say, a loose cannon when it comes to foreign policy. But he has been um, very welcome in uh, German-Russian fora and in German-Russian conferences. And he's become the poster child of the German-Russian forum. He's been the keynote speaker recently. So we are talking trouble here. And I think it was the American Enterprise Institute that had a piece recently about Germany, about Laschet becoming the next uh, problem of the Biden administration. And I tend to agree with that. Now, you saw this memo that was leaked, I think, to build about uh, Nord Stream 2, this proposal from the German side to the Americans, let us complete the, the construction, which is nearly there anyway, in exchange for, I forget what the terms were, were but you have some background knowledge or insights into this. Can you explain what the, the kind of bargain on offer was? Basically, it was an offer that was made to the Trump administration uh, in late August. And um, this offer was made by the Minister of Finance, Olaf Scholz, who is a social democrat. They basically offered the following deal. You lift the sanctions against uh, the construction of the 
pipeline and in exchange uh, we will uh, acquire large amounts of uh, LNG and uh, we have already the, the terminals uh, ready planned and they will be ready and basically this was a dirty deal. The problem of this of this offer is that it was made in the back of the German parliament, which is already problematic. It would have been, of course, going against the, the decisions of the, of the Congress. So what we have here is actually a country, an allied NATO country, Germany in that case, that deployed massive efforts to have these sanctions lift and the, the German embassy in Washington actually worked the floor on Capitol Hill and tried their best. Uh, some uh, companies, also some PR companies were hired by Nord Stream, a lot of money around, and they really tried their best. They tried hard, but the, the Trump administration was uh, well advised and actually spotted the trap because the argumentation of Russian propaganda was, well, anyway, the Americans are in this for themselves. They just want to sell the liquefied uh, gas and uh, this is going to work because this is Trump and this is the Trump policy. Now, you have a high level of misreading here of American politics because the idea that this policy of sanctions was cooked up by some kind of circle around Donald Trump that it were particularly hawkish and that anyway Trump, corrupt as he may be, or so they thought, would accept any type of deal, was completely misreading that this was a bipartisan decision, that the problem with Nord Stream 2 did not start under Trump, but was already on the agenda under Obama, and that basically this was a no-go and it was this would not happen. Republicans here wanted to do something hawkish against Russia or something seen to be hawkish against Russia to distract from Donald Trump's entanglements with the Kremlin or so-called. I mean, we went through five years of this kind of um, American vivisection of alleged fifth columnists and intelligence operations and, you know, corrupt money deals between Fifth Avenue and Moscow. And the Democrats... Let, let me add a, a last thing, because this is really important. Mm -hmm. The thing is that this misreading actually led the current Merkel administration to believe, well, this didn't, didn't work with the Trump administration. This will probably work with the Biden administration. And now it is rumored that certain circles in the, uh, around the foreign ministry were trying to warm up this proposal and tell the Biden administration, well, you know, jump on the wagon and uh, uh, this is on the agenda again. And then again, the, this is a complete misreading of American political culture and American political system, because that would mean the Biden administration goes against the Congress. Well, good luck. Well, that's eminently possible on a number of fronts. I mean, there are a lot of, for instance, the, the JCPOA that Biden wants to rejoin and bolster could very well be the president versus a slight majority of the Senate because there were Democrats who were quite anti-Iranian regime and were very skeptical of the original deal under Obama and don't think it's necessary to enter into it. But I agree. And, and look, you know, Democrats on this issue... I've talked to people incoming in the Biden administration, and there is a, a thread, you know, to put through the needle here, which is how to help Europe become more energy independent and not reliant on Russian oil and gas. And also in the likely event of increased sanctions against Russia, which seem to be 
forthcoming because of the Navalny murder attempt and incarceration. But also, what do we do to ensure, I mean, Biden has run on a foreign policy campaign of America's back, and we're going to revivify our alliances and our friendships. And he can't really do that without bringing Berlin on board. So you don't want to alienate Germany. So I'm hearing things such as, well, we can let them finish Nord Stream 2, but just make the whole project more reliant on the intermediary pipelines throughout Europe or, or, you know, diversify it somehow down the line. I don't know. So it looks like maybe the Germans are not completely misreading at least this new White House. Uh, They realize people want to lower the temperature in America in terms of wagging the finger or cracking the whip abroad, particularly in Europe, right? And the the one area of the world that Biden does feel, I think, deep to his core as as an old school 20th century internationalist, he cares about Europe, right? He doesn't care about the Middle East. They have deprioritized that as a portfolio. And this whole pivot to Asia thing, I mean, I think he sees China as the new, which frankly, most of the American foreign policy establishment does, as the new emerging superpower and grand competitor to the United States. And Russia is, it's a nuisance to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. So I don't know. I mean, is is this so far-fetched that there would be some kind of accommodation made for Nord Stream 2? There is what I think, and there is what I think is possible. But just uh, imagine the the foreign policy disaster in Central and Eastern Europe. And just imagine the Biden administration for one second serving this uh, to uh, Russian propaganda on the silver plate. The Russian propaganda that has been pushing the narrative, well, you will see eventually the Americans, you know, well, for the right price, the, the Americans would do anything. I don't think that the Biden administration would be very well advised if it were to indulge in that kind of building bridges to the Russian Federation right now. And this is ultimately what uh, what would happen. And that would mean losing Central Eastern Europe. Okay, which is not something that uh, Joe Biden, who believes in a Europe whole and free would want to do and certainly not alienate the Baltic states or, I mean, Ukraine seems to be something that is going to matter quite a great deal to this administration, notwithstanding the fact that it that country inadvertently almost torpedoed his candidacy through Donald Trump's first impeachment. Well, Natalie, look, this has been very, we've we've done a kind of grim toward the horizon of <laughs> European grand strategy or lack thereof. I mean, what what else do we need to address here? I feel like every time you and I sit down, it's it's a laundry list of grievances. It's like Festivus. We, we air our grievances and complaints and nothing ever improves. But I don't know. Shall we end on an optimistic note? Is there any cause for celebration? Celebration, I'm not sure, but look at civil, the role of civil society in Belarus, for instance. This is a dying regime and it is sending very clear messages to Moscow. And Moscow is getting the message. So, yes, there are reasons to be uh, optimistic. I think we could welcome Belarus uh, to the community very soon of of free countries. I'm not sure how long it's going to to take, but I'm quite confident that uh, Lukashenko is heading a dying regime. But is it a dying regime that's going to be resuscitated or put on life support by the Russian government? I know that he's he would not be averse to that. And if so, does that mean little green men? Does that mean annexation or some kind of, what do they call it, integration, I believe is the term of art? Right. Just making it essentially another oblast of the Russian Federation? I'm not sure the Belarusians uh, would accept that, quite frankly. 
Yeah. Let us not forget that this is a vibrant civil society. Uh, we tend to belittle them. We tend to infantilize them. I'm sure they have not said their last word. And, um, you know, look at Moldova. I think, I think we might get surprised. As for Russia, this is a dying uh, system. You know, I have a colleague uh, who is currently posted in Kiev, and he, every time we speak, uh, I say, so, you know, you told me very soon we would see a collapse of, uh, of Vladimir Putin regime. When is that happening? And every time he tells me, oh, it's a matter of weeks, it's a matter of months. He's been saying this for eight years. We keep him alive. That's the sad truth. Putin is still there because countries like Germany have the policy they have. Yeah, no, I mean, it it really does come back to his one, I think, savvy strategic insight was if I can so entangle myself with Western financial systems and essentially second Western policymakers into providing me with more money and resources, I can live forever as a regime. Absolutely. And then, you know, Germany, again, uh, to end on on that note, Germany is the master of mixed messages. Um, I've said it a number of times, but yes, the chancellor was very big on sustaining the sanctions, etc., etc. But she's also the one that welcomed Vladimir Surkov to her table after putting him on a sanctions list officially at a dinner in Berlin. She is the one that allows plenty of of very murky business deals with people who are under sanctions. Uh, We have recently Arkady Rotenberg, who has been investing millions in Germany in real estate. He's also under sanctions. We have people who are under U.S. sanctions who run uh, hubs of uh, hostile influence, such as uh, Vladimir Yakunin, who's been dining and whining and inviting the who's who of uh, German politics in Berlin, and at the same time, conducting hostile influence operations. We've seen the results in Austria, but there are also some results in in Germany. So, of course, uh, if you let these people operate on your soil, then don't come whining. Okay. Well, on that that note, I think uh, we're going to call it a day. Uh, Natalie, it was great to chat with you, as always, and even better to record it for uh, posterity and for a wider audience. Just as background, Natalie and I have done tours of these various capitals and met with diplomats and political stakeholders. And, you know, it's always the same sermon. So we've had this discussion or some variation thereof for, for several years now. We'll have you back on uh, the next time there's a European crisis, which is probably going to be in about 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you again, though. This is uh, Michael Weiss, and you've been listening to Foreign Office. Thanks a lot. My pleasure.